Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. Hey, everyone. Before we get started with the show, I'm excited to announce two things. First is that my book, Marketing Automation Unleashed, is now live on Amazon. So go get it. The second thing is we have a new sponsor, Qualified.com. I'm going to tell you about them in the next couple seconds here and also how you can get a free copy of my book thanks to them. So who are these people? Well, Qualified is the number one live chat and chatbot platform for Salesforce and Pardot. Sales reps can have real-time, personalized conversations with who? Your hottest website visitors. So I want you to know, I don't just partner with anyone. I genuinely love these guys. And the platform, we use it at my company. Our sales team loves it. We've closed a lot of deals based on it. Um, had a lot of great conversations with prospects too. So, you know, a lot of marketing these days is what? Hurry up and wait, right? Fill out this form. And then if we pass you over to sales, maybe you'll swap six emails with them to find a good time to talk. But what if a prospect is doing research right now and they would chat now? Why not give them the opportunity? So the best part is your company actually decides what leads are worth a live chat. There's a lot of noise out there. You don't want to talk to everyone. So Qualified actually connects to Salesforce and Pardot, and it's able to pull in lead and contact information so you can specifically know if you're talking to a VIP, a VP, a decision maker. It's really kind of like magic. Now, if you don't know who someone is, well, what happens then, Casey? Well, that's when the bots come in handy. Chatbots can then ask you know, questions to further qualify a lead. Find out if maybe this is someone you do want to talk to. And they can book meetings while your sales team is out. And they can wake up the next morning with a bunch of meetings on their calendar. Now, here's the promo. If you are a company that wants to give your sales team this ability, right, to be able to talk to decision makers right when they're on your website, do this. Go to qualify.com and start a chat, right? They use their own tool, of course. Start a chat. Tell them that Casey sent you. If you have Salesforce Pardot, when you schedule and then do a demo, they will send you a free copy of my book, Marketing Automation Unleashed. Not bad, right? Well, it's only while supplies last, so hop on this thing today. And that's it for sponsors. Let's get to the show. Boom. There it is. Okay, cool. We hit record and then things catch on fire. I'm excited to introduce the guest today. He is a B2B, he is a marketing leader, revenue operations leader, growth marketing leader. He's just leading things like all across the board. It's really, we're going to talk a lot about optimizing revenue models. He spent a lot of time doing this, perfecting the idea of how do you get those early stage companies growing and growing fast and understanding how to get something. And he's actually turned it into a formula. Also the host of the State of Demand Gen podcast. He's actually won an award called the Innovator of the Year. What? CEO at Refine Labs, Chris Walker. Welcome to the show. What's up, Casey? Awesome to be here. Yeah, man. Dude, it's early. We've got our coffee. We are ready to crank this thing. So Cheers. The sun is shining. Yeah, the sun is shining. Let's do this, man. Our marketing leadership series. And I want to do this. I'm going to pass you this thing. This is going to help you uh, with this next part here. It's heavy, though. One second. Okay. Here you go. Here you go. This is Thor's hammer. You got it? There's a the handle. You got it? Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. 
take Thor's hammer for me and smash some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception, and just set the record straight once and for all. You don't need more leads. You need the right leads. Boom. It's not about quantity. It's not about quantity. It's just the right leads. I mean, easier said than done. What, why are people just doing it? The opposite, honestly, right? Is that what we're doing? We're just going after quantity? Yeah, I mean, I think it's driven by uh, a lot of different factors. Um, but when it comes down to it, like we'll go into companies that are generating, let's just pretend 3,000 MQLs a month. Then those are getting passed to their inbound SDR team and the SDR team's following up. And then three months into working with them, their quote unquote MQLs are down to a hundred, but they're driving more qualified pipeline and more revenue because they're attracting the right people that are ready to buy and are super educated. That sounds like a good idea because if you're getting less leads, you're probably spending money, less money getting those bad leads. So you just optimize the whole, the whole thing. Um, is it easier said than done? Uh, what, how, how, do you, Surely. how do you make that transition, you know? Surely easier said than done. Um, however, it, it's driven, I think, what starts at uh, culture. And uh -huh. companies will build the, the infrastructure around the company to support the sales team. And typically, uh, companies that are, are farther along right now, or even early stage for that matter, have um, sales teams that I would consider overweight. There's too many sales reps and not enough demand to support all those sales reps. So the marketing team gets forced into a quantity game in order to keep the sales team busy, whether or not that actually drives revenue or productivity from those people. Yeah. Over, overweight sales teams. Tell me about that. Like how, how do you know when there's just too many people on a sales team? I think it's um, a pretty deep analysis. Um, but I think what it comes down to is like our from a customer acquisition cost standpoint like what is your what is your cac and then if you break that in to different channels like how is that broken down between marketing source and and sales source and then if you start to look at that typically what we'll find is that the customer acquisition cost um, from marketing source leads in a company that's running the right model i would say is somewhere between 1.5 and 3x less than a pure outbound um, generated lead or sale. Um, and when you're seeing that type of customer acquisition cost difference, um, for whatever reason, companies continue to try and scale their sales team. Um, and I've over time learned that it would be much more efficient to scale the marketing engine and continue to tighten that up and drive quality leads. And therefore you wouldn't need so many, um, sales reps to continue to drive your revenue growth because all the sales reps are being more productive because they're being fed high quality leads that close faster and at a high rate. Yeah. Yeah. Being more productive, right? I mean, it's all about maximizing human time. Yeah. And when it, I mean, when it comes down to it, because companies have so much capital and, and money tied up in their overweight sales team, they don't have those resources to invest in fixing their demand gen engine, but then even further downstream to continue to invest in product, to build a competitive advantage, to continue to invest in success appropriately to drive, um, customer happiness and overall retention, um, and then the overall infrastructure of the business that needs to run. And so because companies have so much money in the sales team, it kind of like sucks 
the ability to build the rest of the business out. Yeah. You know, as you, as you're describing that, I was just thinking, okay, I mean, how much is like one salesperson a month, you know, it could range obviously depending on industry, but you know, let's say it's like fully loaded 8k. Yeah. What did you say? Eight or you said seven or 10, 10 to 20 K a month, a month fully loaded 120 K a year. Yeah. 120. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It sounds like you've done your math. <laughs> Clearly, I need to get a calculator. Okay, I've gone right. through this a lot. Right. So, uh, okay. So, you said like 10K, 10 to 20K. Yeah, I think 120 to 240, depending on industry and performance, right. fully loaded at the right amount. Yeah. For an Okay. 80, see, that's different. That's I was thinking lower. like five yeah. at one point, but you're right. 10K, in my mind, I'm taking your question and saying, what could marketing do with 10K in that month to, to drive more? leads and then maybe one rep like if they've got an overloaded sales team let's say instead of that one rep you what would you what would you do and if marketing has a good answer for that there's probably something valid there but i think maybe sometimes marketing doesn't have an answer for that they haven't worked with you they haven't they haven't figured this thing out and so companies are like well we can at least add another salesperson there to try to you know farm up some leads or dig yeah. them out of the dirt yeah i mean the it even get it gets further exacerbated when you have a hundred sales reps in a 30 million dollar company and then it starts to like, what is that? 10,000 yeah. times a hundred people. You're spending a million dollars a month on your sales team without travel expenses or tools or, or infrastructure management infrastructure and all these different things. And so like, that's when it starts to get really interesting for us. Cause then like, how could you deploy that million dollars a month in a different way? Um, and what I found over time is that companies historically, like if you look back at 1995, for instance, the way a B2B company would grow is by having an average performance per rep and then continuing to scale the reps because that is how you went to market. There was no digital targeting. Buyers were not looking online for products. The only places, the only ways people would discover products is by having a friend or colleague tell them about it, by mm -hmm. walking a trade show floor and discovering it at the industry annual conference or by having a sales rep either show up at their door or cold call them. Those were the ways to discover a product in 1995 for a buyer. Yeah. However, that's not how it is today. So companies are still thinking about it in that, in that idea. Okay, so we're at this, we've had this much net new revenue last year on 10 reps. So all we have to do is just scale to 20 reps and then we'll have double the revenue. And unfortunately, that's not how it works anymore. And so because, because buyers have changed, you actually need to create the demand on the marketing side which then sales can capture. Sales can create demand. Like that, that is not arguable. It just doesn't scale linearly. Interesting. A couple points there. Um, when you brought up 1995, it reminded me, I think I've seen, there was a Facebook post recently where someone said, you know, we right now in 2020, we are as close to 2050 as we are to 1990. Like, which is wild to think about for some of the older people. <laughs> mm -hmm. some of the gi joe generation um wow right in, in the th think of it that way and then to your point are you are we why are we still trying to sell like none of us have iphones you know like we all have palm pilots it's not it's not like that anymore it's totally yeah. different i mean precisely and then if you i mean to to really get granular on this if you start to break it down to like the the quality of a conversation so let's just pretend for sake of for conversation that you have a conversation that happens at a trade show booth. 
So someone shows up at yeah. your trade show booth, you spent $50,000 all in on travel, booth expenses, planning, all those different things. So $50,000 on the booth, you drive 100 people to have conversations with you there. It's $500, what, $500 per conversation. Yeah. And then, and then whatever happens in that conversation. However, what if you could just spend a dollar and get that person to watch a video that has the exact same content that's discussed in the trade show booth and instead of spending a thousand dollars to hit that one person that has to be in that location has to stumble upon your trade show booth and you get lucky versus you being able to give it to them online in a way that they want for what 0.1% of the cost. Yeah. So that's the way that I think about it. It's like, if you break it down to like the actual touch points, you can just do it in a such more effective manner, manner, which then educates people and then gets them ready for when either you go outbound. So when we do demand gen, well, we find it augments outbound efforts. People are more yeah. likely and more receptive to outbound, but more so the people that you're driving inbound are 80% done their buying process. And then the salesperson's job is just to help that person buy something, not convince them to buy. Right. And it's a much better, it's a much better place to be as a sales rep to just help someone buy what they already want versus having to try and convince them that your thing is the right thing. And so I think about it from like a sales rep's perspective, a buyer's perspective, a CEO's perspective. It just feels very obvious to me. It, I mean, if you gave someone the opportunity to either spend 500 bucks or spend a dollar, and I know it's just a, an example, but like, hello, <laughs> you're right. I mean, maybe that video took some, you know, time, some effort, or maybe that cost you like what, five grand or something, but then it's still like, okay, okay, spend $1.25 or $2 to get that one person versus all the time and effort to get the $500 conversation. Yeah. And then how many buyers are in your market? Let's just pretend that there are 50,000 people that could reasonably buy or influence the purchase of your product and only a hundred show up at the trade show booth. Yeah. So you, you've barely even touched your addressable market with that touch execution point. However, you make the $5,000 video and then you distribute it effectively and you can hit three, four, five, ten 10% of those people fully consuming the, the video. And then you do that over yeah. and over again. And as you do it over and over one, you get better at actually communicating Two, you have multiple touch points. And so I have some, some data that I think is interesting for people to think about that are doing social or online marketing that is not intent-based, so not Google AdWords, I need your software and then I click on it, but actual like marketing, not direct response, is that when people come inbound to talk to me, the CMO of the $35 million company comes inbound to me, I ask her, how many of my videos did you see? Hey, Liz here. Did you know my dad has another podcast that's about podcasts? It's called Creating the Greatest Show, and it's about the ins and outs of how to make a great podcast. So once you're done listening to this episode, just search for Creating the Greatest Show on your podcast app. And now back to the main event. See on LinkedIn before you were comfortable reaching out. And the average number is somewhere between 30 and 90 for people. And that's a sample size of 15 or 20 VP marketing CMOs. And so like, if you think about that from your buyer's perspective, the idea that you run one cold targeted ad on Facebook and all of a sudden someone's right. magically ready to buy is just not aligned with how people actually buy things. 30 so to need, 90 you of your videos. videos. Yes. I know we're connected on LinkedIn. So you're, you're, are you just, are they frequently coming out or? 
How- I publish a, I publish a, a video or a post at least once a day. And wow. because of that insight of that they need to watch 30 to 90, I'm ready to test what, if I post three a day, does it accelerate that process? Yeah. Has it? Has it? We, we, we've been testing on and off. It's actually quite difficult to post three times a day. The copy is actually the most time consuming part. So being able to write meaningful copy alongside the video is really what, um, what takes a lot of time. It takes 30 to 30 minutes to an hour to write a thoughtful post that resonates with people. And so, um, we're hovering at the one and a half to two on average per day and, Mm -hmm. uh, continue to just work at it, but it's not, it's, it's hard to have every post come out with the exact same quality while also scaling quantity. And so, um, that's a challenge that we work with companies on too. Right. Cause you, you could easily say, Oh, you know, I heard on a podcast, this guy named Chris said, I need to post a bunch of stuff on LinkedIn and then people start flooding it, not realizing the actual point of the whole thing is that those 30 to 90 videos, they may have actually watched one or they may have seen a bunch scroll by, but they actually watched maybe like five of them randomly in that pack and they were all valuable. You know, they actually really helped. The impact of the content matters more than the impression. Nice. Nice. As in the, the number of views impression or... Yeah. I mean, if someone sees my post, like there's some value to it, whatever intangible value to someone just seeing me on LinkedIn with a post that had 4,000 likes or whatever about demand generation. However, them actually, the difference is if they actually consume the four minute video and then the difference in the impact that it leaves versus the consumption of the four minute video versus the impression of my name is astronomical. Yeah. And so companies need to think about that too. They're running um, banner advertisements to show their logo, which has an intangible value, um, depending on where it's located and how many people actually see it and different things like that. But the real value happens when they see your logo, click on the piece of content, read your blog about a statistic about how CFOs are struggling with this and they're a CFO and they're also struggling with this and you show them that there are better ways to do whatever they're struggling with. And yeah. that over time, you do 10 of those studies, six different feature announcements of different things. Um, part, you know, a couple of case studies of successful companies that did that, partners and integrations that you've done and announced those. And over time, you can, if you do it effectively, you can completely change the perception of a market if the product actually does what you say it does. And so a real caveat to this is like, there's no sense in doing demand generation if you don't have a product that brings value and has to a defined set of people. So you got to have the product first. And then most companies will go sales heavy. I think that it should be marketing heavy and then sales to support the growth that's created on the marketing side. Oh yeah. Totally makes sense on that one. Um, Love the point around no sense in doing demand gen if the product's not there, if the service is not there. And I, I mean, I've always told marketers, even though it's wild and crazy, like if you don't like your product, if you don't like your customer, then leave, go somewhere yeah. else, go somewhere where you like your thing actually makes a difference so that you can make a difference getting people onto it, you know, as opposed to just mm-hmm. signing people up for the next sham wow commercial, like make, make a difference with that thing. Right. For sure. I mean, it goes for, I mean, anyone that is putting in a significant amount of effort on anything, must have some investment in the outcome of whatever they're trying to do. Yeah. Right. And so whether you're a seller, a marketer, the CEO, the janitor, like 
you have to have an attachment to so that you're excited to come into work every day. And if you're not, if you don't feel the impact other than making your money, um, and a lot of people are driven by money and that's fine. But if you don't feel that impact, maybe you should find a place where you can find that because you're going to have a lot more happiness and drive to accomplish whatever you're trying to do. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, money's cool. But when you're staying at home and like, there's nothing better. I mean, you can't join the Peace Corps, but you could. But if, the next best thing might be actually working in a company that where you care about the people you're trying to help and the customers and all that. Um, question for you, the videos on LinkedIn. Any tips like someone who's like, okay, I want to start doing these a la Chris Walker style, um, you know, other than like have a great hairdo at the start and uh, and uh, solid mic set. I any tips you have for people? I I've heard the make sure it has impact. You have an aha moment in there. Anything else we should we should be trying to do? Yeah, I mean the the framework of my videos is well published on my LinkedIn profile, so people can go and check those different things out. Nice. But a couple a couple different tips. Um, would be to start with a long form content pillar like what we're doing right now so that you don't have to think about what to write about every time. I just write about what I've already talked about, right? So figure totally. out a long, long form content pillar, whether you're interviewing your customers or interviewing thought leaders in your market or just talking to other people or jamming with other experts inside of your company, whatever you want to do, but start with a long form content pillar yep. and then you can break that down into micro content for LinkedIn um, and then inside of the videos, having a, uh, having captions really matters. So go to rev.com a dollar a minute for captions, get those, um, put them in the video. Cause most people are, I mean, a lot of people scrolling through are just going to read the words, not actually listen to the audio. What was that site so that again? Matters. It's called rev.com. There are plenty of transcription type uh, um, yeah, yeah. services. There's a couple free ones that are automated. So, um, do that. Um, I put a headline at the top, which kind of like, isn't a thumb, I call it a thumb stopper, which is like um, a couple of different words that would help people understand whether or not the video is right for them. And so um, bold headline at the top of the video, which helps people um, stop and, and decide whether or not to consume it. And then lastly is to format it in square. So a lot of companies will format it landscape because that is the YouTube version. Um, but because you're on a mobile device that's vertical, the more vertical real estate you can take up, the better. Um, mm -hmm. So I would recommend formatting in square versus landscape. These are like wizard tips. It's like, a, it's like Gandalf is teaching me how to cast magic spells. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And then the, the key one I touched on a little bit before is the words that you write matter deeply to whether or not the post is successful. And so like a, I've done tests where I post a video and say, you should check out this video, it's cool, versus writing what I think about the content inside of the video really? and the differences are massive because huh. a lot of people won't even watch the video. They'll just read what you post. And so actually take being very thoughtful about what you write inside the post is a critical factor to success in LinkedIn organic. Got it. So don't just pull like an Ali G be like, yo, check out this post. It's uh, it's amazing. Smiley face emoticon. Or if you're like, yeah, Hey, yeah. this post is about this. This is what it's almost a place. Do you repeat yourself or do you just, I mean, sometimes I can either paraphrase or take a key idea out of the video and then kind okay. of like expand on it inside the post. But a lot of companies will be like, you know, we, we, you know, had this cool event and we did this and go and check out the content and move them off the platform. And what mm. I found over time is that a lot of people don't want to leave. And so by like companies will, instead of actually saying something inside of the post, they'll just like have a, just like a little description, which is why no one's actually going to off to your site to read it. 
Like I do right. all the work inside of the platform. If someone wants to go and listen to the podcast, I'll drop the link in the podcast yeah. for, um, in the comments. But I, I don't expect that a lot of people will do that. Mm. Right. And so, so I try and, I, yeah. I try and get everything done, can communicate the entire message on the platform. On the platform. Right. Which You're right. Everyone's trying to our, get you to the next platform. Go listen to this podcast. Trying to move you off, subscribe yeah. to our newsletter, come and read this blog on my site. Um, one, the LinkedIn algorithm deprioritizes links that are embedded in posts. They want people to stay on the platform. So you might as well work within their, um, their guidelines. And then secondarily, like this organic strategy on LinkedIn is not the same strategy that we use on Facebook paid. And so like, there's so many different nuances on what channel, whether you're paying for it or it's organic and all of these different nuances that most people are not inside doing the work enough to even understand. Yeah, like surface level, they're just kind of taking a taking yeah, I mean, pot shot at it. They'll read a blog on neilpatel.com about how ah. you know, <laughs> should do this and they'll just read a headline and make an assumption across the entire board that that's how you should do it. And it's just not true. Like in anything, I have my own unique way of doing it, but you can too if you go in and because you'll go in and you'll spend the two hours a day and you'll figure it out and you'll realize when someone comments here what the best thing to do after that comment is and you'll figure out your formula. Yeah that you think is best um, because over time, like the, the guidance that someone gives you is only going to get you so far. Yeah. It's like if you were playing basketball, like at some point you actually have to go and shoot the shot. And so, um, yeah, I just uh, would push people. I guess I, I've been talking about this more. The first, the first step if you want to do this stuff is to commit to it because it's hard mm. and it takes time. And so if you're not committed to it, you're going to post for four days you're not going to see the likes or the engagement or the leads that you want and you're going to give up and then you're going to go back to doing the same different marketing activities that you were doing before that were ineffective. And so and like, lame. How, how long do you have to commit? I mean, I think it's just full commitment. So like for on life aut, <laughs> on aut, it's, it's a commitment until you have data that says otherwise. Okay. And so like on August 9th, 2019, I decided pot committed to LinkedIn. I don't spend a lot of time on Instagram anymore. We do something, we're expanding channels now, but like at that time it was 100% on LinkedIn every day, okay. posting, engaging two to three hours a day, seven days a week. And um, it made a real impact in my business and in my life. But most companies will say we should do LinkedIn, but it'll become 3% of their attention and mix. And if you're going to give something 3%, you're probably going to get 3% of the results that you could probably less than that, actually, because I feel like once you start to get it going, I'm seeing exponential increases in engagement and reach and inbound qualified leads and all these different things, because I continue to execute consistently for a sustained period of time. Right. Wow. I'm, I'm sold, man. I'm so LinkedIn needs to hire you be like the, the, their evangelist. I, you know, <laughs> as you're describing it, I'm pulling up your page. It's kind of surreal because you're describing it and I'm seeing your page super you know, on LinkedIn, super well done activity. There's a post most SaaS companies we audit are wasting at least 30% of their AdWords budget and they don't even know it. And then click more. And then there's a whole thing where you've written it. And then there's a video and I noticed it has like the talking bars. It's got a picture of you. It's not video, but instead you've got, like you described, you've got that, the words, you've got the transcript behind there. So people can see that without turning it on. That way don't wake somebody up next to them in bed. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are golden moments on 
every platform paid and organic. And so I've only had this feeling twice. I know that other people have seen it on different platforms. In 2015, I recognized that Facebook paid was the best opportunity in B2B companies. Okay. And I continue to run that play because it really is the best play because the platform's so inexpensive, so effective, for B2B. so sophisticated, and a lot of B2B companies aren't doing it and has so much scale. And so like, I think that, and I've, I built my initial part of my career on really figuring out how to run Facebook ads for B2B companies. And we still do it today because no one else has bought into it and the CPMs are $4. It's 20 times less expensive than LinkedIn. And I think that it's more effective relative, irregardless of the cost. Like I do think it's just more effective if the price was the same. And so you have that piece. Um, and then again, in August of 2019, when I recognized that LinkedIn organic was a big opportunity and I pushed my chips into that, um, there are other people in 2012 that saw that Instagram was an opportunity and now have a million followers and have built a completely different life for themselves. Right. Depends what you like. So the opportunities are there and then you need to figure out how you use that to accomplish whatever you want. And so if you're in a corporate company, it might be to help, you know, get more sales so that you can get a promotion. For other people, like I'll give you an example about how it doesn't take that long. Um, we've been doing this live Q&A session for the past 11 weeks since COVID happened. So I just hit up my friend, Gaetano Denardi, and now we do a live Q&A on Tuesday uh, evenings at 7.30 p.m. We've been doing it for 11 weeks. There's a person that has been coming every week, five minutes early to the Zoom while I'm still getting set up um, every single week for the past 11 weeks. Wow. On week one, on week one, we, at the end, we challenge people to go and start a podcast. He, wow. he took that, started a podcast. By week two, he was on episode five. By week three, he was on episode 10. And now fast forward to week 11, and he just went from his job at a director, like a kind of like a stuck in his job as a director of marketing and just got a VP level job in 11 weeks just by, by being active on LinkedIn and publishing content and demonstrating that they can do it. Yeah. So like, that was 11 weeks. That's a success story of someone that, that just saw the opportunity, followed some guidance, and did the work. And so like, I, I love celebrating those things. That's a lot of the reason why I post on, on LinkedIn, like half because I like to be an expert in the things that I tell my clients to do. So I want to be able to know the platform better than anyone. Right. That's one. Two, it generates business opportunities. And three, I get messages from people all the time that say, you know, I just got this promotion. I owe it to you. And I say back, like you owe it to yourself. Like mm-hmm. I gave you the information, but everyone has the, everyone has access to the information true. that I just sent and no one uses it. You did. Right. Congratulations. Right. <laughs> so true. So true. So it's like the I knowledge is power sort of, but you got to use it. And so many people have, can have this knowledge viewpoint, read a blog post, listen to this podcast, but then take action. And that particular person listened to you in that Q and a, did the challenges, you know, sometimes there's like work, um, like worksheets or there's like challenges at the end of each chapter and books. And, and some people are like, yeah, cool, whatever. But the people that actually take the time to take that extra effort, they're the ones that end up being above the crowd. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. It's awesome. Hey, you know, it makes sense as you're describing the transitions and things that are hot and, and, uh, Facebook still being that, that place for the, the ad space, LinkedIn more organic because I, yeah, it makes sense because I remember testing LinkedIn and being like, uh, maybe it's good for a second, but organic LinkedIn, I totally see that. And I see you going all in on the videos makes total sense. Great commitment to that. What's like one, just a transition. I want to give away all the yeah. secrets, but like on, on the more. Facebook side, when you, when you think about Facebook, 
in the ad side. Um, how do you approach it and how is it different from all the other ad platforms? Yeah, so the, the core difference in the way that I use ad platforms versus 99.9% .9 of people, especially in B2B, is that I use ads to distribute content, not to drive direct response conversions. And so I know that if I am able to deliver information about this clinical trial for our product that we're selling into hospitals, and I can get the medical director at that company to read it, because I know what the cost per click is and I know I can watch time on page and I see the average time on page so I know people are consuming it. And if I'm paying a dollar to have the medical director at, at whatever hospital read that thing, then that is worth the one dollar to me. But, yeah. other, but other people, because they don't think about it in that granularity, I think about it as guaranteed communication. Like I know that I'm gonna be able to deliver this message to you, whether or not you click on it is predicated on how good I am at delivering the content inside the platform. However, most companies will only run these types of ads as a way to get leads. And when they do that, they're going to end up getting leads for whatever price, 40, some, I mean, on Facebook, sometimes like five, $5 to, and then on LinkedIn, it can be up to $500. So there's a big range. The, the problem is that because it, especially in complex B2B, if you're not selling like a, a self-service or freemium SaaS tool where yeah. someone can get into the product straight away, if it's a complex B2B sale, it's just not aligned with how people buy things. And that shows and that presents itself hmm. in how, how those people move through a sales funnel. Because I've done what the test. That? So I know that when, when I'm on Facebook or other buyers are on Facebook, they are not looking to get a demo of my product. Right, right, right now. But, but, yeah. but we can show them a video and, yeah. then, and then say, hey, come get a demo. And a lot of people might think, okay, this video is interesting. The challenge is that they don't, they don't have a sense of the cost. They don't have a sense of the implementation time. They don't have a sense of whether it looks, they think it looks cool, but they don't have a sense of whether or not it solves their pain, whether or not yeah. it integrates with their other tools, whether or not their team's going to buy in, all these different things. And so you run that thing and one, your conversion rate from that all to actually create an opportunity is going to be low. Yeah. It's going to like the amount of people that your sales team is going to call and they're going to say, oh, I don't even remember filling out that form. I'm not interested is high, like yeah. very high, more than 50%. And then the people that do get through are going to close to revenue at a super low rate because it's not aligned with how people buy things. And so um, instead of running these ads and collecting leads at a hundred dollars that are going to one, not make it to an opportunity and two, not close to revenue and just end up wasting either my SDR or my account executives time. The waste. So if you look at that all in cost one, it's just the cost of the wasted ad spend mm -hmm. to get to hit a metric that doesn't actually lead to the metric that you want, which is revenue. Right. Um, and then two, all of the wasted time of your people following up, which is a hidden cost what it's a hidden cost of the wasted time. It's an oper a lost opportunity cost of what else they could be doing with that time. E either way, the, the costs are mounting. It's almost like I don't need, please don't tell me any more costs. Yeah. So the, 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 yeah. the third one is, is a, another intangible, which is the sales and marketing alignment challenges that get created by doing that. Oh, so you're yeah. driving a thousand leads and the sales team after following up with 30 of them knows they're all garbage. Yeah. And then, so they stop following up and they're like, these things stink, send us better leads. And then you try and, and then you don't know how, 
because yeah. you've been trained to do it that way. And so yeah. it, it, it creates so many different problems that starts with the idea that you need to drive volume of leads, which is how we started this episode. Which is how we started. And, and to your point on the alignment, when you do actually send them the quality leads that are mixed into that mush or on some other lead source, they're not following up with that either because they, they're already Precisely. mad at you from this bullshit. They're not looking for the needle in the haystack for the one good lead out of the thousand that you're sending them. It's just right. not, that's not how it's going to work. Right. And so um, for all of those different reasons, what I figured out is by just giving people information at a high frequency in a way that they want to digest it and then allowing them to decide I'm ready to start my sales process, which if you think if anyone's listening to this thing, like they, they're like, Oh, that makes sense. Like when I'm ready to buy something, I know where to go and get that company. Right. Like yeah. I, I, know, I know how to go to their website and call them or get, or fill out a form for get a demo or talk on their web chat. Yeah. Like just think about anyone listening to this. There's no, there's really no exceptions. It's a human buying behavior shift that's happened over the past 10 years is that that's how people want to buy things. Yeah. They want to talk to your sales rep when they want to talk to the sales rep. Right. Not when your sales rep wants to talk to them. And so, um, I just, uh, over time have learned to have empathy for buyers and try and be as much aligned in my marketing with their buying process as I can. Right. You know, this, this reminds me of radio ads and how useless they can be trying to force people into buying in a certain way. Hey, here's this brand. Here's this brand. Call this number. And I'm like, I'm freaking driving. I'm not going to call it. But to your point, I know how to find you. So maybe save it instead of repeating the phone number three times for people. And, and you know, other than that, the, the old person sitting at home with a notepad, no one else has paper. I'm not, yeah. not going to like drive and write it down. I know I can go Google it later. You're right. I don't get the good tracking. I don't get the good metrics, but people do that in pursuit yeah. of the measurement to prove that it did yeah. something. And when you, make people jump through hoops in order to prove that your marketing did something, you actually prevent them from doing whatever you wanted them to do. Right. And so like uh, this, it's a really obvious example. Anyone in B2B will, will, will understand this is like when in 2015, when I built a demand gen function inside of a $30 million company from the ground up, I read the blogs from HubSpot that told us that we should have a con a long form PDF that we gate behind a form that then people can come in and either through paid social or organic, come and download the thing. And then after they download it, we'll send it to them in an automated email through HubSpot. And then they'll go into a workflow where they'll get five emails over the next 35 days about different types of things. And then you just look at it. And a couple of things happened. One, very few of those people actually ended up becoming customers over in a six month window. The wow. second one is that in paid social, you're using an ad with a direct lead gen form. So, hey, here's this PDF, download it. So they convert, so you get the metric of a lead. The metric. However, when you go and send the auto-reply email with the content, the click-through rate was less than 10%. And so you're paying wow. less than 10% of the people actually even had the opportunity to get into the PDF. And then if you look at the content engagement from there, it was pretty low. And so what we're doing is we're creating so much friction for someone to actually read the content, which is the whole point. And so um, over time, I've figured out that the, the goal is to think about if someone only read one sentence out of your thing, what would you want their key takeaway to be? And so I keep them very tight. So all of the stuff that we run on paid social with a, with a like landing page or traffic type of uh, goal 
is that they need to be able to understand whatever message within three minutes. And so typically it's a short form, like four to five paragraph blog that's reporting on this study or us a quasi type of press release. Like we take a press release, we write it more casually, we put it on the blog instead of a press release about the new feature that went came out or the new integration partner that we have and we target people that use the technology that we just integrated with. Yeah. Or uh, we have a case study about a customer in the manufacturing industry that just used this and got this result and then we target our buyers in the manufacturing industry with the case study. Like that's, that's how we run the plays. And I'm glad you brought up the the whole HubSpot gated content thing. Do I get the sense that you're not putting a form up when you're driving people from Facebook? Like they're clicking through, you just want them to read this thing. Is that what's That's going on? Yeah. And so a lot of people get tripped up on that because in order to give them the content in the way that they want, I forego the ability to measure it aside from the cost per click and the time on page. Yeah. And that's okay with me because I've done it at 15 companies in a row and I know what the end result is, which is more <laughs> pipeline and revenue. And so, and, and I know that there's more pipeline and revenue one, because I measure it, but two, it just makes sense. It just yeah. makes sense that if you can educate people at scale about what your product does and who, you know, how to use it and who's had success with it and what big customers you have and you know, how it's differentiated and what pain points you solve, like, if you can do all that stuff, but do it in a way that's educational and not salesy, which yeah. is another place, if people try and do this, they're going to end up going into full on sales mode, trying to yeah. convince someone from never heard of you before to wanting to buy your $50,000 software tool in one blog post. And that's not going to work either. No, no. And yeah, to be fair, if you've got some kind of tracking tool behind the scenes on that page, they eventually come back later on, you'll maybe have them cookied. So maybe you get that, some of those metrics later on. Um, but unfortunately that, that, it doesn't usually happen like that. No, so it doesn't. No, there's a you couple write things. It off. One, 99% of, or, or more of the traffic generated through these ads is going to be on anonymous mobile device visits. And Got very it. few people are going to come back on the mobile device and convert. They're going to convert right. on a desktop computer. The second thing is in a right. complex, in a complex B2B sale, the person that's reading the blog might not be the person that converts in the form. Right what we found is like we were tr at one company, we were trying to sell to the director of respiratory therapy, director okay. of respiratory medicine, but we would be advertising to all of the respiratory therapists that work underneath them. Because what I've learned is that the people, everyone wants to sell to the CFO or the CIO, mm. but the people underneath them actually make, tell them what decision to make. True. And so I've started purely, um, not purely, but like focused a lot more on advertising to the influencers in the organization that then can help the person that quote unquote makes a decision, help them make that decision or at least get it on their radar. Yeah. So you make this move in your company because Chris told you to, and then how, how do you not get fired because you don't have the metrics that you used to have kind of thing, like give it time and then things are getting better and that's how you know it's working or, I mean, you, I mean, you just said I did this 15 companies and it's working. How does, how does everyone else use this and how do they justify and, you know, we're always trying to justify our jobs and all that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think the first step, which is the one that I took is to use data to demonstrate to executives that what we're doing right now isn't effective. Okay. And so it's, it's not like, um, so just go in and show them the last campaign you did with the ebook that you ran $100,000 in media against on LinkedIn and got, you know, 2000 leads, let's pretend $500 a lead. 
and then look at what happened to those thousand leads. Yeah. How much did you spend? A hundred thousand dollars. How many people made it into opportunities? Where are they in the pipeline? How much pipeline was created? How much revenue was created? Right. And look at that in a, whatever your sales cycle is, look at that at two X your sales cycle length, give it like a fair amount. So if you're on a 90 day sales cycle, give that six months to play out and then just be, be transparent about it. Okay. So we did this execution yeah. and we created, you know, we spent a hundred thousand dollars. We created three opportunities. We, we won one deal for $6,000, but no, we spent a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> and all these different things happened. And so like, I'd like to run an experiment of maybe a better way to do it because it doesn't feel to me like this is working. And you can do that with any execution. Trade show boost is the first one that I attacked in 2015 because there was so much money being wasted there. Oh, tell me about it. Those things are like castles. I mean, they're expensive, right? I mean, instead of going to 12 trade shows a year and spending on average $25,000 a month on those booths and then all the travel costs of your reps and your marketing team and the distraction that it creates in planning them. Yeah. Uh, what if um, you just went to two? Okay. And then if you just went, instead of going to 12 trade shows, you just went to two, depending on how much money you're spending on them, you've probably opened up somewhere between 500000 and $2 million in budget to use somewhere else. Right. And so, right. and it's not to say that you can't go to the event. Like I'm actually pro going to the conferences where your buyers or thought leaders or partners are. I'm just against spending $50,000 on a booth that doesn't, it's not needed in order to have all of the success of the event. You just need to be there and have right. a plan and know the right people and know how to interact and know how to create content and know who's in your pipeline and how you need to meet with them and all those different things. You don't need a booth. People are not showing yeah. up at your booth waiting, like hoping that they can find something new to buy things. Like they're going to look on the internet. And so... <laughs> They might uh, want your stuffed unicorn. Like I know sometimes I've been to like Dreamforce and and I'll even just tell them like, look, can I have your this unicorn? It's for my kids back home. Like scan me, but I'm literally going to unsubscribe, you know, mm -hmm. or they call, hey, you want to yeah. buy this 50 grand software? No, I just really wanted that really cool stuffed animal, you know? Yeah. And so the first uh, step is just demonstrating that what's happening today is ineffective and try and quantify how much money is being wasted. And maybe in there, you're going to find one thing that's working. Yeah. Like maybe AdWords is working. Okay. And then maybe you should try and take initially take some of the budget from trade shows and try and make AdWords work even better to drive more revenue. Like maybe that's a that's a right. probably a common a common thing some people would find. And and then from there it's align using that data to align the executive team on what actually matters. And what actually matters is revenue, not the leading metrics that they think lead to revenue because right. it doesn't, it doesn't map that way. Like you could have, if you had 10 good leads, you'll probably get more revenue than a thousand ebook downloads. And so like a lot of people don't think about it that way. And so yeah. it's like, we need, instead of going for like right now we're doing, we created 36,000 MQLs last year and we closed 30 deals, whatever that win rate percentage is incredibly low, like less than 0.1%. So like there's that, there's the wasted sales team's time. Like what if, we set a goal of trying for all the leads we generated, trying to win them at 10%. And then once we get to a level where we have um, an effective marketing engine that's driving actual revenue results, then we can figure out how to scale from there. Yeah. But why are we scaling a channel like this? Hap this happens in a sales channel. This happens in a marketing engine. Why are we scaling a channel that's already so inefficient? Because as you scale it, it's going to get more efficient, more inefficient. True. So, yeah. 
Oh, this works 1% of the time. Well, let's do it a thousand times more and maybe it'll get, no, it'll be probably a less percentage if you do the Mm -hmm. math after that. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's not easy because I think a lot of the times we kind of rely on measurement to help us feel more comfortable. Like we're making a difference and trying to calculate ROI. And I mean, that thing you said earlier just still sticks in my mind that when you put the measurement first and it is actually preventing you from doing the thing that you're measuring in the first place, then it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Cause you spend so much, you spend so much time talking about the phone number that you don't actually communicate whatever you were trying to accomplish. A hundred percent. Right. Right. And so like, yeah. Well, Just we only have 15 seconds because the other 15 seconds is our, our phone number and our web address and a really dot mm-hmm. com HTTP colon slash. Really? You're going to say the whole thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, they'll find you they'll find your brand. They'll Google you on their phone if they want to. Um, crazy. I, I could see how you could have a lot of fun because just thinking about it, there's so much bad marketing out there. There's so much, there's so many opportunities to do it right and to actually see a big improvement in how it's done. It's just, we, we need to change what we're measuring and why. And so okay. like in 2015, when I was running Facebook ads targeted at respiratory therapists, yep. I knew they were working because there was 500 respiratory therapists commenting on the ad, asking questions, wow. saying other things like tagging their boss, tagging, <laughs> asking someone at a different hospital what they did. That's how I knew it was working. I didn't need a lead number. I knew that people were engaged and I knew that when they're engaged, they're learning and they're sharing and it's creating word of mouth and internal yeah. discussions about whether or not they should continue to do it the way that they're doing or look at a different option. Yeah. It's, we need to look at the, the effectiveness of channels based on the, the effective communication inside of the channel. Like when it comes down to it, all the, like the digital infrastructure does is allow us to scale our ability to communicate. Yeah. And so if we're trying to scale our ability to communicate, like I just want to be able to have your attention and for you to take away whatever I want to communicate to you. And then after that, it's up to you about what you want to do. So last question on that. Let's do it. We're, we're, we're kind of jaded on advertisements, right? Especially in marketing, you know, there's probably going to be something if you click on that, how does your ad, do you say like no forms or like, do you, do you say like this content's for you? We're not going to like stick you to it. We're not going to make you fill out your mother's maiden name to get this information. How do you, how do you compete at least and not look like everyone else is just trying to suck you in and get your information and cold call you the next day? Because I know that people are in their Facebook newsfeed looking for either information about their friends or looking to learn something or see the news. And so I position the content as if it was news. Oh, news. And I use non-branded images. Like what you, if you think about this as a marketer, think about it like you're a New York Times reporter for your industry or for your company. And then say, so the, the example would be, you know, the, uh, the New York Mets um, have success with blah, blah, blah software tool. And then the picture would be of a baseball field, not of a branded image of your company. Yeah. And then someone clicks through 
and they read the article and it looks like just if they clicked off onto the New York Times, except without all the garbage banner ads. And then they get to, uh, they get to consume the message. And then what happens after that is 99% of people don't click get a demo. Don't click any of those things. They go back to whatever else they, they were go doing. Back. Yeah. However, you've accomplished the goal that you set. Right. You wanted someone to read that and understand it and have a takeaway about it and an impression on your company. Mm. And if you did that, then you've been successful. Right. Wow. Good yeah. stuff, man. There's so many cool ideas and different things. It's like, I, I don't know if it, people listening are like me, but I'm like, okay, I'm going all in on LinkedIn organic and this Facebook thing sounds fun, uh, done right. And you know what? I think, I think we all kind of prefer the non grimy marketing, right? The marketing that is just the way we'd want to receive it. You know, do want to others, right? Mm -hmm. I'd like to cl click on that and see that. And that even sounds fun to make. It, it just, it's so much better. It feels better to do that too. You're just yeah. trying to help people out. Yeah. Another example for people, a lot of people will run, whether it's like uh, co-marketing or anything on a webinar. And a really interesting example on this one is like, we've been doing this live Q and A now for 11 weeks. Okay. Yeah. And consistently there's probably somewhere between 20 and 40 people that show up every week. And one week I decided to do a poll because I think this is, this will really resonate with people is what I asked those people, how many more of the webinars would you have come to if one, if I had a sales rep call you after the first one? Like most people wouldn't come to the second one after they got a sales call after they attended the first webinar. And so I think a lot of people should think about that is that you want people in your, your content. And by doing some of the sales activities mm. in such a short term fashion, you actually push people away. Yeah. Hmm. I do a lot of webinars myself and I'm trying to think like, Hmm, I, mean, I, I love giving people content, but you don't want to then feed them right into the flames. Like, Oh, and you know what? Sales doesn't like him either. How Most many times have I do. heard sales be like, I don't want to talk to this person just because they went to a webinar. It doesn't qualify them at all. Like exactly anything. And, and you go back to the same problem you just mentioned earlier, where now they're not going to trust you because you sent a bunch of people over any, any tips on webinars, these Q and A's, any approaches you have to that? How do you make, how do you make those just like your Facebook ads where they're just so selfless? I mean, the, uh, the objective, I guess, is to understand your audience so deeply and cont continuously provide value that they want to show up 11 weeks in a row. Like if you use that as your KPI of repeat visitors or something like that, then you know that the content's working at some level. Um, the second piece that's critical right now, so many people are doing virtual events, do not use a deck and just have a monotone presentation across it. The key of having someone show up live is interaction having audience participation. And so we set it up as a, a Zoom meeting, not a Zoom webinar where everyone's on video and we can unmute people and they can ask their question and we answer it. And the last key thing is that the objective of the webinar is to create content. So by leveraging the audience to ask questions, we continuously have a new stream of content and then the content gets produced and distributed across different social channels and we get our leads over there. Yeah. Not, not at the people on the webinar. Same thing goes for a live event. I've been to so many SaaS live events, micro event, invite you to a, you know, a nice steakhouse with 20 people and do a lunch and learn about ABM or something. <laughs> you go there and you We've have all a steak. been there, man. Yeah. You go there and you have a steak and then, um, and then, you know, you got an account executive hounding you on the phone for it. And, um, and it just, 
I would prefer like, and I've been doing these tests and I know that they work better is that I would have the 20 people in the lunch and learn. I would have, I would bring someone else in. I would forget the presentation deck. I would talk about a topic and then I would use the audience to ask questions similar to what we do on a webinar. The audience can ask questions. We film it. And then we use the actual video content chop it up and distribute that online. And again, that we get the revenue business impact on the amplification of the content after the event, not at the people at the event. Not the people at the event. Such yes. a, such a game changer. I mean, how many times are we looking at, it's like people are drooling over the, the, the event attendees. Like let's, let's get them boys. Like they're, I feel like it's a, the Lion King and all these hyenas are like circling around your web webinar attendees. And it's your point. It's not them. It's, it's everyone else. And, but they're going to help you create that fresh content. They're going to ask the questions that you didn't put in your content yet. They're, they're mm -hmm. the content. It's awesome. Exactly. Man, who are you? Who are you? How, you know, so many things. You have so many ideas. You've studied all these different concepts. Can you take us back like little Chris days? What was it like growing up as you? What did you want to be when you were growing up? Like, who are you, man? Yeah, man. So I grew up in a, a small town in New Hampshire, spent a couple of years working on an apple farm. Uh, Where in New bit, Hampshire? Uh, outside the Nashua area. Small okay, town. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, that's where I'm at. I'm in Nashua. Yeah. yeah. And uh, was a big athlete um, in high school and so played, played baseball and basketball and then went on to play college for a couple or college baseball for a couple of years. And, uh, at the beginning of college, I thought I was going to study pharmacy and maybe like think about how to research making pharmaceuticals or something like that. Really? And, uh, and then got into college, took organic uh, or chemistry one and was like, this probably isn't for me. Nah. And so I pivoted, <laughs> I pivoted and went to uh, biomedical and electrical engineering, which was like, I wanted to at that point design medical devices. Um, and then I got out of college and started doing that. And what I found, and this is kind of like really interesting as I reflect on it, is that I was much more interested in how the technology solved someone's problem yeah. than the actual creation of the technology. And so I was in engineering, but quickly moved to product management, upstream product management. So I would go out, talk to customers, understand their feedback, run beta, um, beta rollouts, get their feedback, spec it back to engineering, decide what the product should look like, what the interface should do, all those right. different, like how are we differentiated across, across the market? What are the key, how are we going to position the product, different things like that. Um, and then over time kind of like was even more interested in figuring out, okay, so if we have the product, how do we get people now to understand what it can do for them? Right. And that, that became like a big jump in empathy and psychology is, is how are you going to communicate with people in a way to like, again, it's just like at scale, educate people on what are you doing today, which is most likely the status quo mm -hmm. and how are you going to, and, and why should you, out of all the things that you could be doing with your time, why is it the right idea to move from where you are to this exact product and, and what's the outcome? And so, um, a lot of companies in their marketing will spend all of their time and all of their marketing energy for the most part focused on the 2% of people that are actively buying. And so that would be like Google AdWords, paid search, retargeting, um, you know, G2 optimization or whatever, referral aggregator, things like that. Um, 
in, intent, like uh, intent data is a big term, but somebody's got to have intent first and how are you going to get them into intent? So instead of focusing on the 2%, we do focus on the 2% that are actively buying. We call it capturing existing demand. Okay. However, all the upside is all the upside is figuring out how to move the 98% of people that are not actively right. buying into a buying cycle. And how you do that is by awareness-based, educational-based content campaigns that help people understand why they should do something differently than how they're doing it today. Mm. Um, and when you educate the 98%, you actually create a brand perception where you are the front leader mm. when they decide to buy. And wow. so there's a lot, I mean, we see a lot of people come through, like the difference is when you're, when you're playing in the 2% of people that are actively buying, you're, you're a vendor in like the RFP process. They're like, we're yeah. looking at three vendors, we're going through this. Yeah. And when you win a 98%, they're just coming and buying from you. Right. Like, I, that's a good point, that, man. Cart before the horse, like the, the demand is cool and knowing that they're buying, but yeah, now you're, now you're at, you're at baseball tryouts, man. You're just, you're just one of the, one of the numbers, you know, you're, you got to get out in front of it. Yeah. And so like the, the people that come inbound to me on LinkedIn are not going out and looking for six other marketing agencies. They want to work with me. That's called right. brand. And right. so like, um, and, and I, before I did this for my company, I did it for several businesses under their corporate logo. And I'm just now moving it to my own company. And what I've chosen to do it is under my name. Right. Um, but it can work. It works just the same for the hundred million dollar software company, the billion dollar medical device company, the two million dollar early stage, you know, fintech startup. It can work across the board. It's just brand. Interesting. It all comes down to that brand out in front of everything. Huh? Huh? Did did you did you ever um did you ever get to the point where you thought you might go like pro baseball? Um, no, I recognized, uh, senior year of high school that that probably wasn't the path I was going to take and kind of my, like really started to focus a lot more on my education after that. And I'm, uh, and then I had a career on the injury, my, uh, sophomore year oh, of college gotcha. and, and kind of used it as a opportunity more than uh, anything. And so got really focused on, added a double major, got really focused on my studies. No kidding. Um, learned a yeah. lot. Yeah. Took some different leadership opportunities, took, um, some internships where I could learn, started a couple side businesses. And so like all those different things are all components of Got it. who I am today. Yeah. So that you could have been spending that time, you know, um, if you were still, if you hadn't got injured, you'd still be probably spending so much time in the athletic side. And, but you, you leveraged it instead of being like, Oh, poor me. You're like, okay, well, I got a bunch of time now because I don't have to go to practice and all of the trips and the games. And so let's just, so you started companies and all, all you just kind of like just started doing more. Yeah. And, and wow. I mean, we will never know what the outcome is, but like I got a lot out of the athletics too, hard work, oh, teamwork, sure. yeah. um, going up against adversity, all these different things that I think also make me who I am today. And so just yeah. kind of like, um, looking at what is the situation today and what, what can I make out of it? Yeah. Did you have to do organic chemistry? No, I did, uh, just basic chemistry one and two and then got out of there. Okay, cool. I was going to say <laughs> it murders college students. I hear it wasn't in the, it wasn't in the cards for me. <laughs> well, you know, I got a hypothetical for you. If, if you can, mm -hmm. um, you know, COVID and all, we're all kind of stuck in our places, but I may have a time machine up in Nashville, New Hampshire. So let's say 
everything's better, back to normal or whatnot, new normal, whatever it is. Come up, Nashua, get some apples from the orchard, and you use my time machine. You go back in time, and you talk to yourself. Talk to yourself either, you know, you just graduated school or sometime in school or whatever, some point around that early in your, in your life. What would you say to yourself? Any advice you'd give yourself? Do more of this, do less of that? Focus more on the people that you work with. Huh. At the beginning of my career, I was, uh, and this is not a regret, it's just a reflection. Is that yeah, for sure. I was very focused on building my skills um, and not enough focused on the organizational change component. Like I'm an innovator. Like I really like to go in and look at yeah. how things are doing and fi- figure out what are the most imp- important problems in a business and solve them. And it just so happens that the most important b- problem in most businesses today is marketing. And so, um, and so like being able to figure out how to communicate in the way that I do now, which help, which helps people understand where they are today and where they could go. Yeah. Um, and being able to have a lot more empathy for how they feel and how resistant they are going to be to change and how that's going to affect them is something if I was uh, 18, I would probably spend more time on early in my career. Wow. Yeah. The people, the people you, bu- you bump into and, and it ends up being a smaller world sometimes. And, you know, I think on LinkedIn, when I was looking at you earlier, we're connected to 251 people, this mutual connections, right? It just is such a small world in the marketing world, both in the Boston area. So that helps, but mm-hmm. like, you know, you're right, man. The people are, are important just as much as the skills. Craziness. Yeah. And it really matters. Like I, I think for people that are younger, like it's, it's almost like not who you know, but one, who knows you and two, what you can do for them. And so like when I was 23, I did not have a lot to offer to the CMO. Right. But now I do. And so like, it's not just having their relationships for the sake of having them, like in order to really have a place where people um, know about you and want to work with you and all these different things, you have to have something to offer that is unique and brings them value. Right. Yeah. Man, do you, do you have time for anything else outside of work and all these amazing content campaigns? What do you do for fun? Do you still play ball? Uh, don't play, I don't play basketball. I exercise a lot. So I'm a, um, big runner and use that as like my 6am kind of like yeah. thing to get my day set. So I do that seven days a week. Um, we'll occasionally take off a Saturday, but for the most part, it's seven days a week. Um, how far? Just makes, um, it depends. So usually, I mean, some, some days it's like a workout in two miles. Some days it's like a little workout in seven miles. And so, um, you know, it, it varies. I don't do a Mix ton of up. long dis- long distance anymore. Um, and so, yeah, the, the exercise mainly because I love how it makes me feel. Yeah. And so I feel like, um, I feel like I'm so much more, uh, creative, resistant to like stressors and different things like that, that I, I get a ton of benefit, um, from, and also just getting your day started and having a routine, I think is super important for productivity. And so, um, we'll exercise a lot. We'll try, love going to the beach and just like kind of checking out for a couple hours. So, um, we'll, we'll do that, spend some time, uh, with friends. Some of my friends have kids now, which is cool to see them grow up. And so, um, 
you know, do some, do some hiking in the white mountains in New Hampshire from time to time. Yeah. Do a lot, do a lot of travel for work when, when travel, you know, when, when it's safe to travel and everything like that. So inside of the travel, like, um, will be able to do other things or see other places, which is nice. But like, for the most part, like, I don't feel like work is work. And so like, I enjoy totally. doing it, like interact, like coming on this podcast and talking to you, like, it feels like a, it feels like a vacation. Like I like doing it, you know what totally. I mean? It doesn't feel like we're doing work. And so I think like finding whatever that is where like on a Saturday morning, like you have a couple of different options, but like you kind of want to work yeah is, uh, is a good place to be it's just finding something that you really like yeah man i i sometimes joke that i feel like the truancy officer the police are going to come and be like you should need to be at school you know hating what you're doing you're having too much fun it's like it's like we had a day off from school and you're just we're having a great time um when you can find that zone it's like magic mm-hmm. for sure man this has been crazy dude this is fun yeah, it's been a blast. I can tell you're having fun. There's so, there's so many things you talk about. I mean, I probably could talk to you for several hours, you know? Like, there's just so yeah. many cool stories. and We can come back and get super tactical in, like, one channel or yeah. certain different executions. So, yeah, happy to happy to do that. Yeah, we'll totally do that. Maybe a little bit later on, too, where we, we get out of this COVID thing and we're like, hey, how, how is it going? What's changed? You know, that kind of stuff. And Yeah. I mean, one interesting point is I'll kind of go off on a, tan- a tangent here is a lot of people have asked me, what about our marketing strategy has changed oh, yeah. since COVID happened. And a lot of companies have had to make huge adjustments. 50% of their budgets allocated to trade shows and in-person events. And they have these field marketing people and what are they going to do with them? And they're not like, right. they're not producing content. And so they've had to make like, and their outbound connects rates went from 14% to 3%. Ooh. So their outbound sales channel is go- is going down because people aren't in the office and they don't have direct dials and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And so like, if that's the situation, like, they have to change a lot. Yeah. But, and, and I, and from my side, like besides not being able to do the live events once a month, like our strategy has not changed at all. And the point, the whole point of the live event is just to create content that we can use on social anyway. <laughs> so, like, right? I'm just sub in a weekly webinar and we get the same thing, but we get four X more content. And so like our strategy hasn't changed that much. And so I see this period of time as, as not a, change a creator of change but an accelerator of change that should have happened already and so a a lot of a lot of companies have have been holding on to the ways that they used to do things and because the economy has been so good they've been able to kind of ride this wave and now we see a downturn and you know the company that was growing the market that was growing at 30 percent, and they were growing at 30 percent with the rate of the market now the market slows down and they realize that like maybe what they're doing wasn't that good and they have to take a serious look at their personnel and their strategy and the tactics inside of the strategy. Um, and I think that the companies that are thoughtful and adjust um, will reflect on this in a couple of years and say that it was a good thing for, yeah. for the business, obviously not a good thing for the world, but for yeah, the not, you know, yeah. people for sure. Um, but as you framed it that way um, around I was thinking about the nineties, right? This is kind of forcing some companies to stop living in the nineties. It's not mm-hmm. the nineties anymore. We're closer to 2050, right? It like, so yeah, it's kind of forcing us to, okay, if you can't do all those in-person events, what are you going to do? And it sounds like you're the answer. So really people need to reach out to you if they have. Yeah. I mean, think about, think about the, 
um, medical device companies that get most of their revenue through field salespeople that visit hospitals. The odds of those yeah. people being able to get into hospitals anymore is very low. Yeah. It, or, or the ac- the accessibility is going to go down a lot. It's going to be a lot harder to access that stuff. And so how are you, you have to basically change your entire go-to-market strategy. Yeah. And like, should medical device companies have been doing inside sales with on-site implementation a long time ago, more similar to what a SaaS model would do? Yes, but they haven't needed to adapt to that. Mm-hmm. So that is a, a very different change that's going to come out of this and companies are going to need to figure out how to adjust. Man, there's so many, so many adjustments going on. It's, it's wild. It's wild. But it sounds like this content is the answer. And this, this style, this approach, uh, your, your formula for doing it. This is, it's cool, man. Hey, what's, what's it, how can people connect with you? What are some good URLs, links, social platforms, all, all that stuff? Yeah, so, uh, so LinkedIn is a great place to connect with me, Chris Walker. And, um, and then we have our podcast called the State of Demand Gen Podcast. We're publishing three to five episodes a week. They're all somewhere between 30 and 90 minutes, like a lot of deep tactical knowledge. Um, and that's accessible on all different platforms. Are those like main, interviews? Is that like main, you sharing what you just did today, that kind of thing? Yeah, so when I'm a guest on podcast, when we do live events, we'll rip the audio from the fireside chat with somebody and like the sales expert or something like that, we'll rip the audio for that. Our audio from our Demand Gen Live Q&A sessions will go on there. Smart. Our um, interviews that I'll do with industry experts will go on there. And so like all that different stuff gets mashed up um, into the podcast and we publish, like I said, three to five times a week and Apple and Spotify are the main channels that we're using right now. Right. Um, so that's good. And then, um, and then the company is refinelabs.com. Refinelabs.com. Sounds like there's a lot of refining that needs to happen, uh, but now is a great time to do it. Man, this has been fun. Thanks for, yeah, man, thanks for hanging. It. Thanks for chilling with me on a, on a Thursday morning. Yeah, this was great. Um, got through a couple coffees, which was nice. Nah, and, it, uh, I forgot to ask, what, what was that coffee you were drinking? Because I, I saw it was this cool little bottle. It was like a witch doctor bottle. It's called the Starbucks cold brew. It's just a Starbucks cold brew. Yep. Well, those things are powerful, uh, man. How many do you have? Yeah, man, I'm feeling good. Um, I think I've had three so far today. You know they're like stronger than regular coffee, right? I like it that way. (laughs) You've had like three. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been. Yep. Um, So it's been. uh, It's been awesome to be here. We'd love to be back sometime. Hope that. Um, the people listening to this found like one or two little nuggets that they can go in and use, whether that's like LinkedIn content or changing up their webinar strategy to not pass yeah. those people to sales or to think about trying to go into Facebook ads manager and just even just the exercise of seeing how many people with the job titles of the people that you're going after are available on Facebook. That was really eye opening to me. It would take you five minutes and a couple of Google searches to do that. Yeah. So like, yeah, I hope people uh, took something valuable away from this. I know I did. I know I did. I literally have two pages of notes. I've ran out of space I'm running in like the margins and stuff and drawing pictures. Um, it, it, so my advice to those people listening, if you did learn something, cause I know you did, uh, then share this with other people, be a thought leader yourself. And in just like what Chris is talking about, don't just blast it out. Don't just put a link, write, write something on LinkedIn, like write your takeaways on there. Um, post a picture screenshot or something as opposed to linking link to the episode if you want, but like, but put your thoughts on there and tag us and we're happy to hop on there and comment too. Uh, Chris, it's been awesome, man. Thanks again. I can't wait to chat with you again on this. Yeah. I can't wait, man. Thank you. All right. Cheers for everyone else listening. This has been the hardcore marketing show. We will catch you all next time.
All right. A big thank you to today's sponsors. Cheshire Impact, helping marketers and sales win, maximizing the use of Pardot and Salesforce. And a big thank you to Qualified.com, the number one live chat and chat bot platform for Salesforce and Pardot. Remember the giveaway. If you have Salesforce Pardot and you want a free copy of my book, Marketing Automation Unleashed, then you go over to Qualified.com, engage in the chat, do a demo, and tell them that Casey sent you, and that book will be on its way to your door. All right. We'll see you all in the next one. 